0: Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel According to John, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 15. Hear these words. After this there was a festival of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethesda, which has five porticos. In these lay many, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there and had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, Stand up take your mat and walk at once the man was made well and he took his mat and began to walk now that day was a Sabbath day so the Jews said to the man who had been cured it is the Sabbath it is not lawful for you to carry your mat but he answered them the man who made me well said to me take up your mat and walk and they asked him who is this man that said to you take up your mat And walk now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that was there later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him see you have been made well do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well this is the word of God for the people of God thanks be to God
1: In Jesus' day, it was meritorious to be a person who would share alms with the poor and needy, particularly at the sacred sites in Jerusalem, the feast days. So what did that set up? That, that set up Jerusalem to be like a magnet. that, From all over the land, it would draw in the people who were the wounded and the needy. And what you would find, there would be these gathering places where they would congregate. Uh, Bethesda, which you heard in the scripture, it was one of those places—a rather beautiful place. Porticos, colonnades. It was a monument um, built in honor of the powerful and the prestige, prestigious. But its citizens—it um, were the blind and the lame. Do you remember that scene? I can't get it out of my head. Um, gone with the wind and it was a battle scene the Battle of Atlanta, and the camera zooms up and goes over the streets and the railroads of Atlanta, then it comes down and what do you see, what do you see? A mass, a great mass of just wounded men, lined up like cordwood, just multitudes of wounded. I have to think Bethesda looked like that, because you see these persons, they came there not just uh, for the alms, they came because of the legend. The legend went like this, once in a blue moon an invisible angel would swoop down over these waters and sometimes get just close enough for the tip of the wing to disturb the waters and there would be ripples and if there was ever a ripple in the water then that meant the angel had passed by, first one in the water is healed. Now geologists have told us that under old Jerusalem there were a number of springs and really underground rivers and every once in a while there would be release of, a, of an air bubble that would find its way to the surface and that that's what the disturbance was about. Isn't that something though? This, this whole society gathered around bubbles uh, bubbles of uh, half-baked promises and truths. Don't you think Uh, Bethesda had to be a divisive a competitive place because there was only room for one at the top don't you think it had to be a lonely place yeah there were a lot of people around you but the person on the pallet next to you would be a foe maybe getting into the healing waters before you could does it sound a little bit like places we were competitive you know um, lonely Jesus Goes to Jerusalem, and what does the scripture say here in John? This is where he showed up. It says something about Jesus, doesn't it? The kind of places that Jesus got into. John tells us that at this time Jesus didn't bring his disciples with him. He went alone. He didn't go there to share in the high feast days. He didn't go to teach his followers. He didn't go to draw a crowd. He knew that there were places in need of help, and mercy. And that's where he showed up. What, what was going through his mind? Just picture it. He's walking through this massive, suffering humanity and there's an infected hand touching his ankle. There's a withered hand reaching up for alms. It's the kind of places Jesus got into. When I was in theology school, I used to walk to school, wasn't too far, um, and every day I went by this bus stop, elementary kids, and one day, th- this was the scene I came upon, four or five of the kids have already gotten onto the bus, and now there's this little boy, and he's, he's down on his knees, he's very upset because there is this, um, this knot in his tennis shoes. Now the bus driver is saying, son, get on the bus. We'll deal with it later. I can't get off the bus to help you. The little boy doesn't want to hear that. He's very upset. He's got a knot on his shoes. And I come along and he looks up at me and he says, mister, do you untie knots? Okay. yeah. Jesus was always responding to that kind of request and and moments, you know, Life gets uh, tangled, it gets messy, it gets broken, and, and so he was always appearing and at, and in those kind of moments. Uh, Peter's empty boat, Nicodemus' Nicodemus's empty heart, the man at Bethesda, the crippled man, his empty hopes. Now I just want you to think about that, I mean 38 years. 38 years of of now almost his entire existence has been narrowed down to the just daily drama of living into this lifelong suffering. 36 years of crippled monotony, the sores on his backside, the the ghost-like sensation sifting through his nerves. There were 38 years he couldn't work, he couldn't trade, He couldn't cook, he couldn't look after children, he couldn't fix an ox cart. He was stuck. Remember Peanuts um, and every once in a while Lucy, Lucy would set up her psychiatry shop And and she'd do it with a little sign. It would say, help, 10 cents. And so Charlie Brown comes down the path, and he sees the sign. She's open for business, and he puts in his dime, and she goes to work. She says, okay, Charlie, um, today I'm going to teach you um, a new way of thinking about life. He says, really? Yes. She says, you know, Charlie, life is like a deck chair. A what? She said a deck chair. You know these chairs that are on ocean liners. Well some people put their deck chair at the back of the boat and look where the boat has been. Some put it at the front of the boat and see where the boat is going. Charlie which way is your deck chair facing? Charlie stops for a moment and says I don't think I've ever gotten mine unfolded. Yeah okay you ever feel that way Sadly, that's where the man in the story is at. I mean, He can't look into the past and refashion it. He can't imagine looking into the future and fashioning a new day. Okay, He's, he's been stuck here for 38 years. So Jesus comes into the scene, just like Jesus. He doesn't see the multitude, he sees people. He doesn't see a crowd, he sees this one person, one man. Jesus walks over, and I don't know how you responded to the question. The first time I heard it, it seemed one of the strangest questions that ever came out of the mouth of Jesus. The man is on his pallet, right? And Jesus walks up and says, uh, do you want to be made well? Now, when I first read this, the first time I came across this story, I thought, my goodness, Jesus, he's having a hard day. He's This sounds a little impertinent, a little irrelevant, maybe even a bit insensitive. I mean, asking this man that question would be like asking a man dying of thirst in the Mojave Desert if he'd like a drink of water from a canteen. Can't you even... Hear the man there on the pallet just responding sarcastically to Jesus. Oh, do I want to be made well? No, I've just been here for 38 years to work on my suntan, right? But the more I live into Jesus, the more I live into the story, I realize this. this is not an impertinent rhetorical question. This is a revealing question. We've been looking at the questions that Jesus asked during Lent. This this is our question today. Do you really want to be made well? Okay. Isn't it interesting the response of the man? He really doesn't respond at all. He, he doesn't answer the question. I'm not sure he really heard the question. Okay. What does he do? He starts going and talking about um, the kind of... Um, In just unjust pecking order. He he starts talking about that the whole system around the pool has been rigged. Uh, He says, and and by the way, I've never had anyone here to assist me to get me there to be in the waters first. Jesus didn't ask him about the poolside system. He said, You want to be made well. And and the man, he can't speak about anything besides out of the cage of his limitations and his uh, frustrations. Jesus is asking a new question. I'm not sure he can hear a new question. Can we? Can we, you know. Do you want to be well? I wonder if that probes at us a little bit. I mean sometimes maybe not. I mean we do cling to this captive thing this victim thing but wait a minute this man's a real victim. I mean these were circumstances he didn't choose. Yes but You can be a victim of conditions and circumstances, but that's different than defining oneself as a victim. I think we have such an appetite for this victim thing, we kind of pass it on to our children. A little girl goes outside, falls down, scrapes the knee. A little bit of tear, a lot of tears, a little bit of blood. You go over and you give the sidewalk a verbal spanking. Bad old sidewalk, hurt my little girl. That's right, she says. I didn't hit the sidewalk. Sidewalk hit me. Victim. I played that game out with my son, Matthew. First day, well, he'd been doing training wheels with his bike. Training wheels are coming off first free ride on the bike and we're out there helping him, you know how it goes, you're trying to steady the bike and give him just a little bit of momentum push so he can get to pedaling and balancing, there he goes, he's doing well, five yards, pedal, pedal, 10, move, move, 15, pedal, pedal. He veers to the right, goes right into a maple tree. The maple tree did not move, it had been there all along, I walked over to the maple tree, gave it a good kick, bad old maple tree hit my boy. And I think Matthew kind of liked it, that's right, I didn't hit the maple tree, maple tree hit me, I'm a victim, a victim. Oh I remember this classic line of George Goebbels on the Johnny Carson Show. You know, George could look kind of like a sad sack at times, and he was on there. And Now they have about five or six people out there with Johnny, and they're all yucking it up and having a good time, and George is just sitting there, just kind of sad sack. And Johnny finally turns over. Well, George, do you, do you have anything to say? George says, sometimes do you feel like the world is a tuxedo, and you're just a brown pair of shoes? I chuckled. I think one reason I chuckled because I had kind of felt that way once in a while and I kind of liked it, you know. The world is just tilted against me, you know. Victim, victim. There is this victim thing, even though there are real victims in the world, probably victims in this room here today. And you know, the people that are victims of cruelty and injustice of hatred and prejudice of random senseless violence of infirmities like had come upon this man but but even given those harsh realities there is something in us that still finds this role this victim role just kind of attractive why would that be to be a victim you're excused. Aren't you kind of excused? Well, we don't expect too much of him. You know what he's been through. You're exempt. No longer responsible. No longer accountable. But everybody else is, right? If I'm a victim no one else is going to be exempt. And you hear this from the man, he goes railing against the system and the people in charge of the pool just hadn't set up an equitable kind of numbering system. When you're a victim, you can just keep playing the blame game. Blame the government for taxing you too much. And your parents for not loving you enough. And your employer for demanding too much. Okay. Do we want to be made well? I don't know. I don't think it's just a victim thing. I think part of it is just what we get accustomed to. 38 years. Now wait a minute. If he's healed, he's going to have to get up off this pallet. And walk into a world that is uh, a lot more demanding and challenging. Where he's at might not be a good place. But doesn't sometimes that place seem safer, quieter, smaller than that which we're not accustomed to? Restoration, healing, it's meddlesome. It can be like an invasion. It meddles with what we've learned to live with. Isn't it amazing how as human beings we do have this capacity just to kind of adopt and adapt to things, uh, even hurtful things, and even even our limitations and sufferings. They they can become our most reliable companion. C.S. Lewis, it's like he said, this clawed lizard that we um, wear on our shoulder. It's there all the time. It hurts us all the time. It's always whispering mean things into our face. But we will not let God take it away. Because, why? Because the lying lizard has become our pet. Oh. The only thing that we think we can count on. So here we are. I mean, we're... We're deep into Lent and we're dealing with our mortality, our humanity, our infirmities, those that chose us, those that we have chosen, habits, attitudes, addictions. You talk to someone who's struggling with addiction and they're going to tell you about that lying lizard on the shoulder. It's been there so long, it's almost like it is them now. Do you you really want to give that up? That, that's a real question. That's not a rhetorical question. We do not know the answer. <laughs> that's, that kind of intrigues me. Jesus asked the question and we don't know if the man ever answered. It's, at least it's not there in the scripture. If he didn't answer with his voice, maybe did you think he could have. He could have answered with his eyes. Do you think Jesus was staring there into the eyes of um, just burning desire? see Jesus was always showing up in these places these damaged places, these hurt places and um, he was trying to tell us again and again that God is there and God is always about to do a new thing not just willing but able to do a new thing the creative, recreative energies of God are still being loosed in this world but when it comes to human transformation It's hard for that energy to do its best without human cooperation, desire. Jesus is looking for that desire. That desire to continue to be a person of choice. That we never lose choice. The desire to say, um, I, I cannot control all the things that can happen to me. I can control what I believe about what has happened to me. What I can make out of what happens to me. That, that desire to keep getting up and walking toward any source of newness and wholeness no matter how threatening that might be. That's, Jesus was looking for that. Here's a good Lenten litany. Um, just kind of sort out and recount where you are at right now physically, emotionally, spiritually and then um, calculate the gap between that and where you want to be, or at least where you know you ought to want to be, OK I mean, do you really want more life? Do you really want more peace, more grace, more health? Something new, something different? Now maybe this story, um, the issue for us is about choice, but it's not the issue for Jesus. The choice is very clear. This is the kind of place that Jesus shows up at, and and Jesus is going to be there telling us that God is not finished with us. God's not finished with creation, and that's what he says to the crippled man. God's at work here. He says, "Rise, pick up your pallet, friend, and walk." And just, just like that, 38 years of crippled monotony, it's, it's vanished. It's behind him. Now, here's an important question. Does that mean that if any of us desire, have a heartfelt desire for that kind of healing, that we will experience such a cure? That's, that's not the testimony of the Gospels, you know. There were a lot of people there that day at Bethesda and they did not receive that kind of healing. To be true to the Jesus' story, the, the people that received physical healing and that kind of cure, they were very much in the minority. Remember Paul? Paul wanted... That kind, of, um, that kind of healing he, he talked about the thorn on the, in his flesh there was some kind of physical infirmity we're not sure what it was he pled he begged he prayed and the cure did not come but what did Paul say oh I did find or it found me a grace that was sufficient in other words he was able to get up and walk in and through his infirmity, to live into it in a new way, you might say this was a kind of healing. At the end of this story, the authorities come up and they challenge Jesus because they say, "My goodness, you you healed this man. You did it on a high and holy day, and he's broken all the Sabbath laws." And you know what Jesus' response was? He said, "My Father is still working." And so am I. I like that. God's not finished with creation. God's not finished with us. The powers of creation and recreation are still at work. God's still shouting us out of our tombs, still breathing life into our piles of dust. And what does that mean? Things will be made new? Yes. Healing? Yes. But healing comes in all kinds of forms, in all kinds of ways. In the New Testament healing is a lot larger word than cure. I had a friend in theology school um, we graduated together actually his name was Ernie. Ernie was blind He was not blind from birth he grew up in the Chesapeake Bay area of Maryland and he was out on a hunting expedition they were going toward the duck blind and his companion tripped and the shotgun went off and um, both of his eyes were gone and he was blind for the rest of his life. We got to know each other in theology school and Ernie one day said, when this first happened to me, um, he said, I was stuck. He said, I was defined by my new limitation. I was defined by my blindness. He said Rob do you know what that means? I said I think I do. I said but you're here now how did did that change? And he said it wasn't overnight but here here's what happened. I kept going to the New Testament and there would be these statements it's the same statements this in today's teaching and you'll see it several times in the gospel just like what Jesus said here he said I would read these words Jesus would say something like rise get up pick up your pallet and walk and he said this is what that meant for me that was a word of healing that didn't mean that I was gonna get up and walk away from my blindness what it did mean is I was going to try To respond to the grace of God and get up and walk back into having a blessed rage to really live. To somehow live creatively, redemptively, in spite, in spite of my limitations. He said, the first part of my healing, I walked back in the garden As I grew up, even as a teenager, my my family said I had a green thumb, I could grow tomatoes, I could grow celery like no one else, and I I really loved growing beautiful dahlias and flowers. I'd given that up. He said, I walked back in the garden, and I started raising prize-winning dahlias. And he said, my friends would come up to me, and they'd say, Ernie, we don't want to hurt your feelings, but really, how much joy can a blind man get out of raising dahlias? And he said, this was my response. He said, you'd be surprised when you have an enhanced sense of touch and smell, how much beauty you can still find in a day." Okay. So I get to know Ernie. We're, we were friends in theology school. He went back to Maryland, and he went to work for Methodist Church um, a lot like this, a large downtown church. And he became um, a licensed clinical pastoral counselor. And I knew that that's what he was doing. And so we're back at Emory about 10 years later. And we're talking. And I said, well, how's it going, Ernie? He says, I, I really I love what I'm doing. I'm, it's For me, it's like sailing true north where I'm at. And he says, here's something that I, I found interesting. I find that some people that are coming to me, would not have come, at least not at first, if I hadn't, unless I was blind. I said, said, oh wait a minute, you're not saying they're feeling sorry for you. You No, he said, that has nothing to do with it. You see, he said, I find that they come to me because they don't have to have the fear of me recognizing them. (laughs) in the halls or out in the streets. He said, you see these people, they come with a gut load of shame and they can walk into my office and unburden themselves with with a strange kind of freedom. He said, I I know, I, I don't say this to many people, but he said, my ministry's been blessed by my blindness. Had he been made whole? Had he been cured of his blindness? No. But would you say that there was a grace that had made him well? I would. I would. And so Jesus still appears in these kind of moments, in these kind of places, our Bethesda's. He offers to us for our sorrow and embrace, our tears, a cleansing. Our pain a balm, our burden a rest, our bondage a yoke, our joy a dance, he still says, rise, take up your pallet and walk.